Hello, everyone, and welcome to What Is This Music, a podcast about the mysteries of musical taste, why we love the music we love and hate what we hate, and what it all means and why it matters. My name is Malcolm Fraser. It has been a minute, as they say. I've been very, very busy working on the What Is This Music book, as well as other projects and life. But here I am back at it doing a pop-up episode. My guest on the show is Lily E. Hirsch, a writer who has written a lot about really interesting musical topics, unexpected topics. I came across her work while I was doing some academic research. Um, she was talking about the negative uses of music. And then I found out that she also wrote a book about Weird Al. So I had to know more. Check out my brief but very interesting chat with Lily right here on What Is This Music? Lily E. Hirsch. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. Uh, you are a writer of several music books. Mm -hmm. um, and I came across your work through your book, Music in American Crime Prevention and Punishment. Mm -hmm. um, that was uh, from a few years ago now. Yeah. But you got started uh, writing about um, the Jewish experience in the Second World War through, through a musical lens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your early work and how you came to be interested in that? Yes. Um, it seems I have been consistently interested in kind of musical politics and musical categories and how music gets tangled up in um, fixing people, in, in reducing people and segregating people. Um, and I, I come from a complicated Jewish background, so that combination of... Jewishness and music was very fascinating to me. I was in graduate school hearing about uh, Mahler and how he writes Jewish music. And then I would try to figure out, well, what is actually Jewish about it? And the answers varied widely. Um, and then uh, I stumbled upon this information about this orchestra uh, called the Jewish Culture League that was set up during the Nazi era um, it was a plan created by uh, German Jews that was then approved by the Nazi government. Um, and that was the only place where Jewish music was heard during the Nazi era, um, besides the uh, degenerate music exhibition that happened in 1938. Uh -huh. um, but that organization was very complicated, and it, it kind of represented this extreme negotiation of Jewish music. Uh, the Nazis were dissatisfied with what the Jewish members of this organization were doing because they didn't think it was Jewish enough. So there, okay. there was a conference that actually happened in 1936 that the Nazis said needed to happen so that these German Jews could educate themselves in Jewishness. Um, and, and, and that kind of, that sort of mess, that problem... Uh, was fascinating to me that the Nazis wanted this simple answer that Germans and Jews were distinctly different. And that just isn't, that wasn't the case. That was never the case. And music, like people, is slippery. You can't segregate music just like you can't segregate people. Um, and 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 that, that was my first big research project. Um, and that was my first book. Um, 
But from there, I started to think about other categories that were problematic in music. And one of the categories was music itself. Um, mm -hmm. Studying music, there's this idea that music is sublime, music elevates us, uh, all of these kind of very pretty ideas. Um, but music can also be used as torture. Music can be used to punish. Music can be used to deter loiterers. Um, and yeah. yeah, just as I was finishing working on my dissertation, I came across a story uh, set in Australia where the, um, authorities were using the music of Barry Manilow and also classical music um, to deter loiterers, to chase away teenagers, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And that one article, uh, which was kind of a jokey article, lots of jokes at Barry Manilow's expense, um, led to a big project, this Music in American Crime Prevention, where I looked at music's use in crime prevention, um, the use of it as crime deterrence, but also um, in torture and in prisons, and also the use of rap lyrics as evidence against their composers, which is a huge prejudicial problem that persists no matter what I write or think I'm doing to solve that problem. Um, it, it, there, there's just this idea that music is positive and can be used in all of these ways. And, uh, it's, it disguises the way music can be used in a lot of negative ways. Yeah. So I remember in, if I remember correctly in, in your book, you're saying that, you know, in, in an ancient, ancient Greek context, music was perceived as having good and bad qualities. And then that was sort of selectively remembered or half remembered uh, at a later point when thinkers took on the idea that music is a purely positive force. Yeah, no, it's true. In the history of music, there are a lot of complicated imaginings around music and ideas that music could do damage. And then somehow all of that got cut in half. And partly um, it seems that happened by necessity. Um, in the Romantic era, uh, musicians started to be on their own. The patron system was at an end generally. Um, you didn't just have musicians working at court. Um, and so to make money to promote themselves, musicians started to talk about their music in a different way. And critics started to do that as well, people that were writing about music. Um, and that was helpful. Um, music needed to be valued. These musicians needed to be valued to, be, to make a living. Um, huh. But somewhere in the translation, in all of that, um, all of these negative uses music, of music were kind of buried and are buried now. Um, and that leads to a host of other problems that I didn't fully get into. Um, I think we have these ideas that uh, music is so good, the people in music are good as well. Um, and that hides all sorts of bullying in music, these abusive directors um, and conductors um, and, and abuse more generally in classical music. Um, yeah, so you said you didn't get a chance to get into that too much in your book? Not too much, and I, and I think that's a topic that I'm becoming more and more aware of. Um, so uh, I, I, even in circles that are surprising, just yesterday, um, my friend who's got children in this youth orchestra, she was talking about how demanding the conductor was and, you know, yelled at all the kids. And she said, but that's what it takes. It's so good for my young son. And I'm thinking, no, it's not. We have this idea 
that that's okay, that that's a part of greatness in music, that these wonderful genius conductors can behave that way. And, mm-hmm. and that, that's, that's not okay. That's kind of a pervasive myth that exists and, uh, and is so accepted in such a widespread way among people. Why do you think that people uh, accept that idea? I think it's just part of our popular imaginings of music and of of male genius that this is this men are able to behave badly in music are able to um uh, to abuse and it's a, often a sign of genius kind of like gosh I'm really going all over the place but I think also of the word crazy when we talk about crazy bad behavior and we're talking about men in music um, it's often seen as a part of the greatness of music and these great men. Um, so it, there's a gendered component to all of this. Um, I, I think women in music can't get away with that in the same way. Um, yeah, no doubt. Uh, I wonder, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I wonder if for the sake of argument, there could be a, a nuanced take on that, that, you know, uh, that people are imperfect, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is not certainly not to excuse uh, anyone's abusive behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, sometimes I wonder if there could, if if uh, we, you know what the solution is, if there's a way to split the difference between you know accepting that kind of behavior and then, on the other hand, just kind of like uh, casting out people who who behave that way. I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure. And I'm not there. I wasn't there at the youth orchestra. Maybe this conductor in this particular case is just wanting the kids to do their very best. And uh, I'm, you know, it's a case by case basis how far this all goes, if it's um, a hard line or if it's actually abuse. I just think that these myths of the past hide certain things that we shouldn't overlook that shouldn't be hidden absolutely um yeah i mean with kids it's it's so hard because you know as a parent on one hand you know you want to you want to 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 nudge your kids to be the best they can be at what they are interested in Mm -hmm. but then at the same time you know you know we don't have to look back too far or or look around too far to see where where that can can cross a line. Yeah, the, yeah, this is a whole interesting discussion especially since I brought up uh kids, which is another topic that is not in that book. Um but I I think there's a a lot of parents that are, you know, push their kids into music with this idea that it'll it'll help with intelligence and and help with with discipline and all of this and maybe in doing that these kids are not going to like music in the future. You know, it just depends. It's it, it's an interesting sure. discussion. Well, I mean, <clears throat> I know a lot of people who were pushed to uh, to study piano in particular right. mm-hmm. and go through the, all the grades of the conservatory, and now they don't even want to touch a piano because they're, you know, they associate it with this with something they were forced to do. Exactly. I I've started writing really terrible humor pieces recently. I don't know if it's a coping mechanism in the pandemic, but I just wrote a silly one about. Uh, from a parent's perspective, I want the best for my kid, so he must hate the piano. 
And it is, yep. it is such a thing. You're pushing your kid. Um, you don't want them to go into music, music. It seems that maybe this is a gateway to medicine in their minds. Um, but whatever it is, it seems to lead to not loving music later on. And in the conservatory experience too, I'm one, I wasn't really pushed by my parents, but there was so much criticism in school around my instrument that now I really don't do much with it. Um, and I, and I need to change that on my own somehow, but I, I think, um, I, I think that happens very easily with music. For sure. So getting back to your, uh, to your book and the focus on using music to repel delinquents, mm -hmm. um, there was something really interesting that I remember where someone you spoke to, uh, had concluded that Baroque music was the most effective uh, musical deterrent yes. to, uh, to to kind of like make teenagers go away, basically. Yeah. And uh, when I read that, I was really uh, fascinated because you know Baroque is also m one of my least favorite types yeah. of music, and I and I I just I mean, as if I remember correctly, the the person you interviewed uh, speculated that it might have to do with I'm trying to remember. It was like the the complexity of it, or mm -hmm. the the uniqueness, the fact that it couldn't be connected to any recent music in in the listeners' minds. But I yeah. I, I wondered whether there might be something more to it than that. Yeah, it's interesting, and that's a hard thing to really uh, figure out exactly. I certainly have my guesses. Uh, they say that enjoyment of music is connected to fil familiarity with music, and not over listening to a piece of music, but some sort of familiarity. Um, and with the Baroque period, there was this ideal around craft and complexity. So it uh -huh. wasn't supposed to be readily accessible, an easy melody that you can just pick up and then keep humming. Um, and so much music now, popular music that people are used to, has that hook, has that melody that you can hum. So mm -hmm. the Baroque period, that ideal in some ways is is pretty far from that, farther than, say, music from the Romantic era, which did privilege melody um, and, and, uh -huh. and, that, and a certain accessibility in the classical music, of course, that, that was almost a reaction to the complexity of the Baroque era. Right. I, I, yeah, I, I can see that. Uh, to, to me, there's something about the, the, uh, the trills and frills of, of Baroque music that, that just evoke a kind of um, cliche about, uh, I don't know, maybe this is reaching, but it, it just like, it makes me think of, you know, people wearing frills. Right. And uh, this connection to a kind of snobbish, elitist yes. uh, associations with classical music. Yes, and there is a play on that elitism that's at work here. You know, uh, there could be a teenager who actually likes, maybe they are, they're an instrumentalist themselves, they know the Baroque period, they might like it, but they're responding to the connotation, that association with the elite um, and 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 they're trying to be cool or or you know go along with their friends and so they leave too they leave that area too so the music it's not just the sound of the music maybe it's not even the sound of the music it's those associations and the baroque era certainly has that kind of frilly elitist association that a teenager is not going to want to be connected to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so did you find out anything uh, that you? were surprised by when you were researching the, the musical deterrent? 
Oh my goodness. Well, there's, there was a lot in that book because I, I think studying music, you just don't think of music along these lines, that it can be used in these negative ways. So people are always surprised by that chapter. And there's always a new article. It seems like each year there's some article about how music's being used as a crime deterrence. Can you believe it? And then mm -hmm. I'm contacted. I think I'm contacted most about that particular chapter just because it seems so at odds with what we think of. Uh, when we think of music. Um, so I was certainly surprised at the time. And now I'm just surprised at other people's surprise. <laughs> it's just right. <laughs> because it keeps happening and it always seems new to people. Um, the music changes, though. So I think there was an article maybe last year about Baby Shark being used, that song. Um, and Sure, I know it all too well. <laughs> right. I, it sounds like you have kids. I also have kids. So that one made a lot of sense to me as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, I think that, you know, anyone over the age of three or four probably might, might be repelled from that song. Uh, yeah. It kind of almost you know, it's an exception to the idea that, you know, familiarity uh, brings about. Well, enjoyment. it goes, it goes the other way. The enjoyment is, it's like this familiarity curve. So as you're enjoying the music or as you're getting more familiar with the music, you're enjoying it more, but then you can go too far. If it's, you're over familiar with it, you've heard it too much, or it's this sort of earwormy thing that gets stuck in your head and just repeats forever, like a baby shark or the Barney, I love you has also been used in that way uh, as torture. Uh -huh. So then it's like you're on the other side of the familiarity curve and now you can't stand the music in a similar way, but for a different reason. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting because I've been reading a lot about, you know, the use of repetition uh, by the music industry to kind of uh, force uh, catchiness. Right. Um, but, uh, but I hadn't thought about, as you say, the, the familiarity curve. Yeah. And when it can, uh, you know, the point where it goes too far. Yeah. Yeah, if it's too repetitive, too much of an earworm, then you're in torture territory. Yeah. Um, it's funny because when I first heard the, the term earworm, uh, it was, it kind of had a positive connotation, but it's, it's taken on, I feel like ever since it um, crept into the popular media, it's taken on a negative connotation, like a, like a song you can't get out of your head. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just stuck in there and no one wants to have a worm in their ear. <laughs> yeah. Paints quite a picture. Um, mm -hmm, it's true. So... Also in your book, Music in American Crime Prevention and Punishment, you talk about, you know, the, the use of uh, music programs in prison and the mm -hmm. controversies around that. Yeah, yeah. And it's an interesting thing because music can do a lot of good there. Um, but there's always these debates around whether or not uh, prisoners deserve music. And again, it's this 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 privileging of music, this idea that music is can only be one thing um, and that denies other varied uses of music um, which are needed and helpful. Yeah, I mean, I, on one hand, I, I sort of understood, not that I agree with it, but the perception that, you know, playing music is a, is a privilege and why are we, you know, giving these guys, you know, fun activities to do 
uh, in prison. But then at the same time, it seems so inhumane. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've already you're already depriving these people of freedom as, as a as a punishment for something that they did. And then the implication is that you have to take away anything enjoyable from their lives or, or, or anything meaningful. It seems very uh, inhumane. That's true. But also music can be looked at as a tool and music can do other things beyond privilege. You know, there's a disciplining in music. There's all kinds of other things that might be more in lines with what people think of as, you know, what a prisoner uh, deserves. Appropriate right. activities yeah. for an inmate. Right. I think over the course of this research, I start to think of music more and more as this tool that can do a lot of different things. Um, it, it, yeah, it's it can be this punishment. It can be something lofty and sublime and something that makes you feel alive. Um, but there's a lot in between that um, that music can do. Um, and when we look at music as just one thing or capable of one thing, uh, we are we aren't we're doing a disservice to music. And it's interesting because it typically is the real music lovers that do exactly that. Um, how so? Uh, they love music so much, and they see this as a as a positive that in turn makes them feel like a positive, a good. Um, but mm. in doing all of that, they're missing out on the full picture of what music is and what music can do. Um, and, you know, as a lover of music, I would think um, a, a person would want to understand music in full. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, as I said, I came across your work uh, through this book, which I thought was, was so interesting. But in, when when I started to 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 look into your other work, I found out that you wrote the book Weird Al seriously. Uh, and then I was really interested because uh, you know because uh, you know I've talked about this on the, on the podcast before, but you know I'm, I'm a Weird Al fan uh, since I, since I was a kid. And uh, anyway, I mean, I just I, I I got my hands on the book and read it. It was really interesting, um, but I'm. One thing that I was very curious about, and I hope this isn't a spoiler because you talk about it quite late in the book, but you say that you weren't a fan of Weird Al uh, before writing the book. And so I was curious uh, how it came about that you wrote this book. Yes. Um, yeah, I didn't reveal that tidbit in the first edition of the book, but now I have this expanded edition and I went ahead and and uh, and got a little more personal. Um, it's true. I it wasn't that I was actively not a Weird Al fan. I just wasn't really aware. Um, mm. I was so involved in classical music growing up that I really didn't know much of what was happening in pop culture. I I was vaguely aware of Weird Al. I just wasn't paying attention. Um, so I say now that I I was a Weird Al fan. I just didn't know it. Uh, right, right. So, because I was, I was such a candidate. You know, there's so many uh, Weird Al fans that I've now uh, gotten to know that found Weird Al um, as a source of strength. You know, this championing of the outsider, this this safe space for weirdness. And mm -hmm. you know, as a student of classical music, I had my own unique interests um, and sensibilities. I was the perfect Weird Al. Um, but a fan candidate. Um, but I just, I just missed the boat for a long, long time. Um, and then when I was writing these different topics and getting very interested in how we categorize music in problematic ways, 
um, I started to think about humorous music. And humorous music came up in my research in uh, music during the Holocaust because music, um, even funny music, was a real source of strength um, for people even in the concentration camps. So here's a very powerful version of humorous music, and yet humorous mm-hmm. music in the classical world as, is dismissed as inconsequential. I knew humorous music had significance and had weight. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to really look into humorous music seriously. Um, and uh, so with that kind of conceit, I thought of, well, who can I look at? What's a good case study? And because I was vaguely aware of Weird Al, because he's everywhere, <laughs> uh-huh. um, he's the first one that came to mind. And I remember just having this casual conversation with a book editor um, at, at one of these music conferences, and I mentioned Weird Al, and she said, well, if you could get an interview with him, you know, just come right back to us. We'll we'll put out a contract. Um, and so I, I got in touch with Weird Al's agent, and his whole team is as nice as he is. He has this unique reputation um, as someone who's very nice, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it seems he surrounds himself with those sorts of people, and I was you know, granted this interview, and not just an interview by phone, as is often the case. Uh, I was invited to Weird Al's house to meet him and interview him. Um, and with that, I got, you know, this book contract and I was off and running and I had a lot of work to do and a lot of Weird Al music to listen to and videos to watch. Right. Um, and it was just so much fun. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I already, I missed this book project so much. I'm so sorry it's over because that was a real fun way to uh, spend a few years just deep diving Weird Al. And it was such a family project. All my kids got involved and um, it, it was it, it was really amazing. And it was the perfect one too, because not only did I want to talk about what funny music can do for people as this uplift and, and all of that, um, I also wanted to talk about the significance in the music, how this music is hard to create. It's not like mm-hmm. serious music has all of the intelligence and all of the the musical skill and then humorous music, anyone can do it. That's so far from the case. In fact, I'm starting to think it takes a certain special sort of musician to be able to flip music inside out. You really have to know music well to be able to flip it in a comical way. Um, For sure. So I, I'm actually, I don't want to create new musical hierarchies where I'm putting humorous music above serious music, but humorous music is significant both in what it can do and what goes into it. Of course, of course. And it's uh, it's odd in a way that people demean humorous music when, you know, laughter is such a an important part of... Uh, of you know people's well-being and just their enjoyment of life. Oh, absolutely. And especially these last few years. I I certainly experienced the significance of humorous music in a new way during the pandemic. And I think a lot of people did with all those parodies circulating and and all of a sudden I found myself unable to write in the way that I normally did just because I was so overwhelmed and anxious. And then yep. I started to, you know, listen to humorous music, try to write some silly things myself. And it was just, it, it really helped me through. And I, I think there are other people that had a similar experience. No doubt. So I'm curious, I mean, as you talk about in your book, there was, uh, you know, Nathan Rabin wrote the, the, I don't know if it's an official book, but it's a, 
you know, it's called Weird Al the book, mm -hmm. quite completist. So I'm curious what angle you brought uh, to the table when you approached his people to um, to pitch another another book on the on, on the topic of him and his music. Well, our books are very different. Um, Nathan's book is wonderful. Uh, it goes through kind of an overview of Weird Al's career um, in a rather light, fun way. And there's lots of pictures um, and side commentary from Weird Al. And it's wonderful. But it's a different book than my book. My book is mm -hmm. kind of a more academic look, although I try to make it still accessible. And I take it all by theme. And I really focus just on the music. I talk about Weird Al's life in the first chapter, but um, my focus is really on the music and uh, and the different themes is in his music. So I have a chapter about politics and a chapter about gender um, yeah. and a chapter about race. So it was a very different book and I pitched it as a, a serious look at the music. And that's, that's different than Nathan's book. Uh, for sure, yeah. for sure. Um, I enjoyed in your book how you i mean you you mentioned earlier that that weird al has is is well known for for being nice which mm -hmm. is certainly true as far as i uh can tell but you you go into some detail in one of your chapters or sub chapters about you know the the not as nice elements not of him as a person but just how you know if you really listen to his songs th there is you know there's there's a dark side to some of them. <laughs> there's a negative side to some of them. There's a there's, you know, he, he can be quite critical or quite mocking. Obviously, it befits a satirist mm -hmm. to be mocking. But um, I, I I liked how you you dived into those th those things that kind of belie his nice persona. Yeah. No. In the music, he can be insulting, and it's it's never just to insult. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, uh, well, except in certain cases, um, but it's mostly to shine a light on something or, or prick a bubble that deserves being pricked. Um, I really love the stuff where he takes on, uh, kind of these songs, these kind of toxic masculine songs and mm -hmm. makes them appear ridiculous. Uh, that has a good message, uh, you know, within social justice, um, so I, I think a lot of what he's doing, the points are, are worthwhile. Uh, so if there's a little mockery involved, it's well-deserved. Um, but it's true, you know, he has this very nice guy reputation and then there is this sort of mockery involved. But again, I think it's for a good cause generally. Um, and, and it's never just, you know, mean-spirited. Um, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you interviewed him, did you get a sense... Did you feel like you got a sense of him as a person? I mean, he, he seems, you know, obviously he has this reputation. Everybody likes him. It's kind mm -hmm. of unique in the entertainment world. Yes. For that. Um, but I, I mean, I don't know. I, I interviewed him briefly once oh. years ago. And I, I came away thinking, like, he he does seem very nice and very smart and a good person in general. Yeah. But there was there was kind of like a, a bit of an arm's length yeah. distance that I felt too, and I don't I wonder if that's just like a, a part of him, himself that he that he keeps protected. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So you had that experience as well. I didn't know that. Um, no, what my big big questions, my really probing questions about like deeper meaning, he often shied away from those or made a joke. 
Um, and, and so I, I had that similar experience. Um, and I understand in the celebrity world, you've got to be careful just revealing everything, all your deepest, darkest secrets, especially to mm -hmm. someone, you know, he had just met me and I appeared quite nervous, even though I was trying to, to keep it cool. Um, <laughs> so I, I understand that he didn't go right for, you know, big revelations, but I have watched a lot of interviews with him with other people and he does that. He seems to deflect these really big, grandiose questions in various ways uh, with other people. Um, and maybe that's part of the reason he's seen as nice. He kind of avoids some of the things that can get a person into trouble, like politics. You know, I was really yeah. looking for those political message and he and he was not helping me out with that, <laughs> which, you know, is understandable. Um, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. I had a similar experience. Uh, so um, what are you working on now? Oh my goodness, I have a book uh, about funny music more generally, kind of uh, based on genres. Um, so that's in the works at University of Indiana Press. And I have another book with the same publisher of the Weird Al book, Roman and Littlefield, about the toxic labeling of women in pop music. Um, mm. And that should be out in time for Women's History Month next year. Um, it's a much darker topic than the Weird Al book. Weird Al, I, I was so uplifted the whole time I was working on that project. This one, I'm I'm angry all the time. Um, <laughs> um, can you can you talk a little bit more about um, about the, the, the concept behind it? I first just started thinking about Yoko Ono. Um, so the book right now, it might change, but the current title is Let Her Be, kind of a play on Let It Be. Um, and I was thinking of the Yoko Ono myth, uh, just thanks to some bad choices in entertainment during the pandemic, I kept coming across pop cultural depictions of, you know, how Yoko Ono broke up the band just over and over and over again. Uh, and when you look at the real history, this is just a myth that needs to die. Um, and then I also started realizing how many other musicians have been called a Yoko Ono. So Yoko Ono is not only insulted, she has, her, her name has become an insult. Uh, mm. And then you couple that with all the other labels that women in music deal with that hide their real history. Like, you know, even innocuous ones like diva kind of seems like a fun one, but it's something that's applied to women. And so men can demand things. Men can be late. But when a woman does that, she's a diva. Mm -hmm. um, so I started to see these patterns play out over and over. I think I mentioned crazy up front. That's another label that I'm looking at. And of course you think of Britney Spears, uh, but uh, working on classical music as a student, there were a lot of mu male musicians who were deemed crazy, um, mm. but it was a sign of genius. But with a sure. woman, crazy is a negative and, and men are allowed to control women if they are crazy. Um, uh, it was, so the Britney Spears tale is just this tragic display of a woman, you know, shackled by this label. Um, and it's, it's a, a pattern that repeats so many times in so many different ways. So um, that book, this book is me targeting misogyny by outing language, so the, the role of language uh, in all of that. Mm, that sounds really interesting. And I, I mean, I think that, you know, Yoko uh, is, is uh, she, she has got her due over the years for sure, and, and and I think people see more and more how 
how absurd and kind of offensive that uh, that uh, characterization of her was, but it is really uh, it is really pervasive at the same time, as you say. Yeah, it keeps going. I I just watched this movie on uh, Netflix, a new movie called Metal Lords. Uh, just came out, or April, I think it came out, and again, there was this reference, we can't let her in, uh, some some girl, because she's a Yoko, again, I was like, wow, it's mm. 2022, this is amazing. Yeah, it's, it's strange. Um, I want to ask you one more question, which is the question uh, I ask to, to all my guests, and I'm interested in your perspective as someone who's written about, you know, using music uh, as a repellent. Um, but are, are there, is there any genre of music that you personally have never been able to get into or have found yourself, uh, you know, unable to, uh, unable to appreciate? Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, there are genres that I, I ha- don't know as well. Uh, I'm a pretty equal opportunity when it comes to music. I think I've had a hard time with country music in the past. <laughs> um, but if there's a good story or if there's um, an interesting use of politics, I'm, I, I go there. I'm, I'm involved in any of those sort of uh, stories. Um, yeah, cu- country is a, is a, is a quite common roadblock for a lot of people. Do you, do you, do you have a sense of why that might be for you? Well, it's interesting. I was just reading about this high women, this group of women who've started a group um, kind of to counter the gender bias in country music. And I think there is this history in country music of, you know, conservatism and, and a kind of gender bias. And it's not everywhere, but it has that association and it, it has repelled me. Um, but there are such interesting women like Brandy Carlisle involved in country music that that really need to um, need to like I, I need to not give up on country music. Yeah, don't give up. There's good stuff there. <laughs> yeah. um, well, Lily, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. And uh, and I wish you the best of luck in all your projects. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure talking to you. I knew I was going to like you because you're a Weird Al fan. Uh, well I appreciate that (laughs) okay have a good day thank you thank you take care bye that's our show I hope you enjoyed it you can find Lily E. Hirsch uh, online wherever you consume your cultural products you can follow the What Is This Music page on Facebook you can find me Malcolm Fraser on uh, Facebook Instagram Twitter Uh, Most importantly, if you like what you hear, go ahead and uh, subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Give us a rating or a review on your podcast provider of choice. I will be back. I can't say when exactly, but uh, I am back into the swing of things with this project. So um, I hope to be posting another episode for you before too long. Thank you very much for listening and uh, we'll be in touch soon with more What Is This Music? (laughs) 